Welcome to Right on Track, a songwriting podcast. Thanks to Tone for tuning in. I'm Demi Michelle Schwartz, and I'm thrilled you're joining me on my songwriting journey. So kick back and relax, don't fall flat, and remember, stay right on track. to Write on Track. I am so honored to be joined by a very, very special guest today. Please welcome Molly Lakin. Hi, Molly. Hey, Demi. How nice to talk to you. I know. I'm so excited you're joining me. When you reached out, I was so honored, and I'm very, very excited to talk to you today. So before we get into our conversation, can you share with all the listeners a little about your journey with songwriting, how you got started, and all that? Well, my journey... I uh, spent the better part of my early years hearing people say, shut up that voodoo banjo. I was, uh, I was attempting to play the guitar, but my fingers are too short. So my instrument was the baritone ukulele, which is the biggest size of ukulele. And I used to tell people, well, it sounds almost like a guitar, so take a breath. (laughs) Nobody was interested in my baritone ukulele, and especially nobody was interested in my singing. In fact, they paid me extra not to sing. (laughs) So um, I was born in Canada and defected during a terrible blizzard. And I took my baritone ukulele with me and drove through that storm and headed for California because I knew that Carol King and Joni Mitchell were desperate to hear my 12 songs about Fig Newtons. (laughs) And I I still can't get over the fact that they didn't want them, (laughs) that they weren't interested in them. I don't know how that could happen, but... You know, someday I'm convinced Joni Mitchell's going to shake her head and say, man, I should have done those songs by Molly Lakin, and I've become addicted to Fig Newtons. So, so far, I haven't heard from the woman. But (laughs) it's not over till it's over, right? (laughs) Yep. I got to L.A. in my dented red VW bug with a leaky sunroof. And I wrapped myself in plastic dry cleaner bags when it rained. So you could imagine the elegance with which I approached Hollywood and the music scene. And um, I got a day job, which was uh, being a social worker for the county of Los Angeles. And... Uh, ironies of ironies, they assigned me to the deadbeat dad file. And my job was to go after all the rock stars that my clients claimed were the fathers of their babies. Oh, my gosh. So there I am straight out of Canada wearing white cotton bras. (laughs) And I have to go to these... uh, uh, accounting firms and try to get them to give money to my clients in the in the barrio 
And the, the, of course, the accountants were thrilled to hear that. <clears throat> and uh, they were, I took my uh, baritone ukulele with me to these meetings because I figured, well, they're not helping me with child support for my clients. At least they can listen to my song. <laughs> Perfect. Well, you know, chutzpah, baby. Again, they kept saying, get out of my office. I don't want to listen to this. Go, go, go. <laughs> and then on my way to visit one of these guys, and I say guys because in that day, everybody was a male who had any power in L.A., and on the way to one of uh, them, I saw a line in the street on Hollywood Boulevard, and there was a group of people all with guitars lined up. And I asked them, "Where? what's this? Well, this is the Friday songwriters um, meeting hosted by Warner Brothers Music. Oh, wow. And anybody's welcome. Well... Forget the clients and the money I wasn't going to get from their their business managers. <laughs> uh, the, not the clients, but forget the deadbeat dad. <laughs> and by the way, they were claiming Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Elvis, and everybody else. So, yeah, right. And I have six children by Brad Pitt. You know, it had the same reality. But anyway, so I, I ditched that meeting and went to the songwriters meeting, and it was every single Friday. And at that meeting, I met a vice president of Warner Brothers Music, whose name was Artie Wayne. And he had a big blackboard in the room and listed all the artists who were looking for songs and what they were looking for. And I went home and wrote a new song every week. It it wasn't exactly what Artie wanted, but he loved the fact that I was trying, mm -hmm. that I did the assignment, and I showed up and I did I did the work, and all my friends at the time were getting signed as staff writers, and I thought, well, that's a lot better than social work. Damn. <laughs> um, so I went up to Artie and held my breath, crossed my fingers behind my back and said, you know, I love working with you. And I even turned down two staff writer gigs so we could continue to work together. And he says, well, come sign with me oh, wow. in my life. I've never tried that again. But anyway, <laughs> it worked. And he moved over to Elmo Music, which was the... ASCAP publishing company at AM Records. And I was a staff writer. I was hanging with staff writers. I was hanging out with people who were really doing it. And I just, uh, the heavens opened. And that's how I got started. Wow. Incredible. Wow. Wow. You can't make that up. No. What do you think one of your biggest lessons you've learned from this whole journey has been? That you have to advocate advocate for yourself. Mm. Nobody is ever going to be more interested in your success than you. Don't rely on anybody for anything. 
you keep pushing, pushing, pushing. And if you hire somebody, you're very careful to delineate the tasks and the fee. Get everything in writing. Don't just have an email. Go to a real attorney who's in the music business in Hollywood or New York or Atlanta or Nashville and get the agreement in writing. Have each of you sign the agreement and keep it next to your keyboard or your guitar. Don't ever trust anybody's word. You say, well, I've known the guy for 80 years. Well, this could be the time that he's not his best self. Well, it's my mother. I know it's your mother. <laughs> but mothers can get greedy when there's money to be made. So I don't trust anybody. I told somebody the other day, if the Dalai Lama was having tea with me in my kitchen, <laughs> I, and I had to go, I had to... Uh, go to the potty, I take my purse with me when I left. <laughs> so don't don't have, have take that as me slamming the Dalai Lama. It just shows you that I don't trust anybody without an agreement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that is really, really great wisdom that I think people should learn early on because I am still just getting started and I've definitely been burned by things, not extreme things. I haven't made any like huge deals or anything yet, but like I've definitely been in situations where people didn't bring up their side of deals and this and that or whatever. And so I've started to put everything in writing myself. So yeah, definitely great, great advice. Well, you know, terrible things can happen. I, um, I have a colleague who was signed to a production company and she had a dispute with them over a song she co-wrote and they would not give her co-writing credit. The song went on and earned probably two, two or three billion dollars and they wouldn't let her out of her contract. They wouldn't let her sign with anybody else. So basically her career was dead in the water and that's tacky. That's terrible. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much of a percentage you get of a song, as long as your name's on it yeah. and it's a hit, who cares? Yeah. It, yeah. Exactly. It opens doors to have your name on a hit. And yeah, they should have given you more, but use it to open more doors. Right. Right. That's a great approach. I love that. So you've definitely had some major, major hits. Can you just share with the listeners some of the major hits that you have credit on? Well, everybody knows my chart buster, I'd rather love Hitler. And that's a joke. <laughs> I was a staff writer at Chapel. And I think uh, they were unhappy with my songs. So I wrote that one and said, well, this one, you'll love this one. And it was, I threw your picture in the trash compactor, I'm hot as an angry nuclear reactor, you're a sleaze, you're a sleaze, 
I'd rather, 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 rather love this. <laughs> now tell me, how much better can a song be than that? <laughs> and don't you love my vo voice? <laughs> Perfect. Oh my gosh. <laughs> now really, um, when I was a staff writer, I had all kinds of country songs recorded. And nobody in L.A. had any clue about country. They didn't even know there was a country chart. In fact, I was, um, I was to, see, to receive an ASCAP Country Music Award, and I asked my publisher at Elmo, could you send me to Nashville? And he says, why? And I said, well, my song's number one. Did we publish it? I said, yeah, you did. <laughs> well, if it crosses over to pop, we'll think about it. Oh, wow. wow. So the brain trust, uh, don't ask me about the brain trust there. <laughs> but that, that was a big deal for me. And I went to Nashville and met some folks. And here's me with my one little ASCAP award. And, and at the time, there was a a huge producer and one of the nicest men in the world, Jerry Crutchfield. He had so many awards, he couldn't carry them. His wife had 10, his son had 10. <laughs> and here's me with my little award. But anyway, that was early on, I wrote a song called Silver Wings and Golden Rings, which was a big hit for Billy Joe Spears. And then I wanted I got lots of other covers, uh, not covers, but recordings of other songs I wrote that were in that genre. And I was very pleased. And at the time, there was a mega producer named Larry Butler. And he was he was great. He kept calling me up. What else do you have? <laughs> do you know how hard it is to get a producer's attention, let alone a phone call? There I was sitting in Santa Monica in my apartment with the lady upstairs banging on the ceiling saying, shut up that <laughs> And on that's one thing. And then on the phone is Larry Butler. Send me some new songs. <laughs> so I used to go to Nashville regularly and I wrote with some extraordinary writers there, including Charlie Black, who's no longer with us, and Rory Burke who's probably the best songwriter that ever um, stepped out of his car in Nashville. And we wrote some great songs together. I got some of them into a movie called Violet that won an Oscar because my friend down the street wrote the script. Oh, wow. And they, there wasn't a budget for music, so we wrote the music. I said, Susan, here are your songs. So that's all chutzpah. I wasn't waiting for anybody to ask me to do anything. I went after it. And I'm known as a pushy broad. And you know what? I'm proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it definitely got you places. So congratulations on everything. And now I want to talk about your incredible book, Insider Secrets to Hit Songwriting in the Digital Age. Can you share your inspiration behind writing this? Well, the digital age is unlike any time in the history of music since a caveman gonged his first gong. And anything we did prior to the digital age is all out the window. And people were 
dismayed, songwriters came to me and said, I don't know, where's the money come? I don't know. What, what do I do now? And so I felt it was important to write this book to show the talented songwriters and lyricists and singer-songwriters on their way up what really goes on, not what they think goes on, and head them in the right direction. That's incredible. Absolutely. So can you share some of your secrets for hit songwriting? Well, first, it's, uh, it all comes down to the song. Everything starts with the song. If you sit at a keyboard and you wail away and play chords and you end up with a hit record, God bless you. <laughs> but if it isn't working... If it isn't working, I suggest this, that you put your right hand behind your back and you pick, or your left hand behind your back, sorry, it's early, and pick out individual notes and rhythm with your right hand and record everything. Listen back, tweak it, record it again. Listen back, tweak it, record it again. I always start with the chorus. And as you know, if you've got a good, strong chorus, you've got it. You can't, it's like buying a house. If you, you're trying to sell a house without a kitchen, good luck. <laughs> the chorus is your kitchen. And if you've got a great sing-alongable, irresistible chorus, that's where you start. And then do the same thing with the verse melody and rhythm. Write something one note at a time, no chords, add the rhythm, make sure the rhythm of your verse is drastically different from the rhythm of your chorus. And then you have the verse and the chorus, which is half the song. Then and only then do, you, do I go back and add the chords. And that way, you've got a good, strong melody to start with. You don't have a chord progression. Nobody sings a chord progression. People sing notes and rhythm. And these days, rhythm is way more important than ever in every genre. Start with the song. Once you've got all those, the, the melody and the rhythm down pat, then write the lyric. But if you write the lyric first, it's difficult to get an interesting melody because we speak English in iambic pentameter. The boy on his bus on a the boy on his bike rode ahead of the bus down the street. That's pretty boring. And it's pretty hard to write anything interesting to that rhythm. The boy on his bike rode ahead of the bus down the street. But have long lines and short lines. Why not take a dice, or is it? It's called a die. Spin it. The first roll is the number of lines in the whole chorus. So say it's a it's a five. So you got five lines. The first line has. Six syllables, the second line might have three, the sec third line might have four, 
the second line may have seven and the last line will go back to the six. Varying the number of lines will make your song way more interesting than if it's four bars, four bars, four bars, four bars, four bars, four. How deadly is that? And how do you make that interesting? So be very deliberate in choosing your notes. And if you write the lyrics first, do what I said with the the um, dice and vary the number of lines. The problem most lyricists have is that they use way too many syllables. And when they send me their lyrics for consultation, I'm looking at acres of words. <laughs> well, no, because that's, they we speak English and I am with, in pentameter, so why wouldn't we write? The thing to remember is that a lyric is not a novel. It's not a short story. It's an expression of feelings. And it's also it also tells a story. And any story, whether it's a newspaper article, a TV news item, a book, whatever it is, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it also answers the five W's, who, what, where, when, why, plus how. Now, most lyrics that I see in consultation tell the beginning of the story and maybe the middle, but there's no end. So here's an exercise I do with my clients, and they find it really helpful, and I'll, I'll share it here. Here, I'm going to tell you two stories. Number one, the boy had a dog, the dog ran away. The boy had a dog, the dog ran away. The boy had a dog, guess what? The dog ran away. Fine. So what? what where, what's going on here? You're leaving me hanging. So here's another story. The boy had a dog, the dog ran away. The boy was terrified. He called the pound. He called the police. He hung signs on every tree and telephone pole in the neighborhood. He rode up and down, up and down, up and down every street in the neighborhood, calling the dog's name day after day after day. Finally, he gave up, knowing he'd never see his pet again, flung himself on his bed, sobbing, and woke up with the dog licking his face. That's a story. Yeah. And and it also has lots of pictures in it. Yeah. There's the there's the um kid hanging signs on the trees and the telephone poles. You can see him do that. You can see him walk into the pound in the police station. You can see him on his bike riding up and down, up and down. You can see him crying on his bed. And best of all, you can see the dog licking his face at the end. So the more pictures you use, the better your story is. But tell the whole story, beginning, middle, end, who, where, what, when, why, plus how. If you answer those six questions, you're going to have a story, hopefully an original one. Mm -hmm. Please don't write a story about a um, little boy whose dog ran away. <laughs> I, and I always suggest my clients write love songs. 
I love you. I hate you. I, I divorced you. I filed a restraining order. Well, it's Friday night. I'm lonely. There's a big moon up there. Maybe you could sneak in the back door. But then you get here and I'm thinking, I got rid of this bum. Now I want you gone. And on the other line, I'm calling the police. So it's a love song. It's a hate song. It's I wish you were back. I wish I'd never met you. Oh, my God, I'm desperate to see you again. Love songs. There's never going to be enough love songs. But when you write a love song, make sure you haven't heard it before. Yeah. And when I write something, I always ask myself, have I heard this before? If so, can I make it a little bit different? And if not, could I write something else? Those are terrible, tough questions. But catch it in the beginning. Then I urge my clients and all your listeners to ask some more terrible, tough questions. Would I say this if I were talking to a friend on the phone? If not, how would I say it? Make it conversational. Okay. Okay, you can do it. It's it's really much easier than sitting down and attempting to write poetry. Yeah. People do that and it works for them. But if you're new, my suggestion is to write the strongest song you can write in this moment that fits the so-and-so chart and would be perfect for an artist on that chart. And if you're a singer-songwriter, you want to bump that artist off the charts. So you better write some strong songs. It's not, it could be a hit if so-and-so sang it. It will be a hit. And it, and that's the way you approach it. It's not like Taylor Swift, oh yeah, she could do this. Well, she write, she sings her own songs. So be realistic. Look up in Billboard every week what the hits are in your genre and find out who wrote those songs. And if the artist did, forget it. Go to the ones who need you. Wow. So much great advice, Molly. Fantastic, fantastic. I have a couple more questions for you. What do you think the number one mistake all beginning songwriters make? They are satisfied too easily with what they put on paper. Okay. To me, that's the first draft. And I know how it is. In the middle of the night, I was calling people in Des Moines, listen to this. <laughs> and and the, uh, honestly, everybody said, because I demand that my friends tell me the truth, they all said, go back to bed and revisit it in a couple of days when you have a cool head. So we're too easily uh, satisfied with what came out. Um, and, and I urge you to realize that songwriting is a process. And there are no extra points for speed. When people say, oh, I wrote this song in 10 minutes. You know what? It sounds like you wrote it in 10 minutes. And the only song I can think of that was written in 10 minutes was You've Got a Friend. <laughs> By Carol King, but she'd been writing songs all her life. So 
it wasn't really 10 minutes. It was cooking in there for a long time. So I have songs that took me a year to finish. I didn't work on them every single day, but I kept getting stuck on the last line of the chorus or something. So fortunately, I had publishers who were who were helpful and come on, Molly, you can do better than that. So you have to listen to what people tell you and not dismiss them as idiots. What does he know? I had that response to something somebody told me. And fortunately, my mentor, and when I said, who is that guy anyway? My mentor said he's the vice president of music at Warner Brothers. I'd, <laughs> I'd rewrite it if I were you, dear. Wow. Well, great advice again. You're so, so inspiring. Um, such great wisdom, of course. Yeah, so one final question for you. You shared so much on this episode, but if you could leave the songwriters listening with one more thing, what would that be? I invite everybody to purchase a copy of Insider Secrets to Hit Songwriting in the Digital Age. And I also invite everybody to visit my website, songmd.com, where there are maybe 80 or 90 free blogs about everything that's important to great songwriting now in the digital age. And I also urge everybody to listen to the songs that are on the charts now. The oldies but goodies, yes, we all love those. But those people are not recording now. Many of them are dead. Many of them are in the big house upstate. (laughs) Um, Lots of them are in rehab. So focus on what's here right now. Who the people are now who are creating hits. And what are they creating? And that's going to really help you focus. You have to focus. To celebrate the publication of my book, Insider Secrets to Hit Songwriting in the Digital Age, I am offering one free 15-minute consultation to those of you who write pop and new country songs and want my input on them. You can reach me via my website, songmd.com, and set that up. Write well today. I'm in your corner all the way. And please save me a seat right next to you at the Grammys. Thank you so, so much, Molly. It was such an honor having you on the show. Thank you again for reaching out. It was lovely having you. Listeners, thank you for listening to this incredible episode with Molly Lakin. And of course, until next time, stay stay right right on on track. track. Thank you.